Now we're going to talk a little bit about prevention and self-help related to these areas, mainly with the demonic problems. Now, it's important to understand the advice I'm going to give here is based on experience. It's based on working on many cases of all the types that we have discussed with Catholic Christians, non-Catholic Christians, people of other faiths and people of no faith, people that are involved in Satanism, the whole range. So when I say some of these things, please consider them and consider the background of experience that they're coming from. I, I don't mean to uh, be preachy or directive towards people that aren't Catholic Christians or maybe aren't Christians. I'm giving you advice based on actual experience. The first thing that is important to understand is that free will is central to all of these problems. You have authority over your own body and your own life while you're living in it. Your choices are always yours to make. God doesn't violate our free will. God does not force himself on us. He leaves us free to choose. Hopefully we choose God in love and we reject the evil choices in the world. So by taking ownership of your free will and your authority over yourself, that is the first big step in any of these problems. Now, the second important step is getting a formation or basically an education, but formation means a little bit more than education. Formation is both intellectual knowledge, but also some changes within yourself. So not just taking an idea and saying, okay, I know this idea, but to some extent internalizing that idea and living it, even if it's experimental at first, maybe over time it deepens. So formation is when we both learn, but we change ourselves. And we might also say conforming ourselves to God and conforming ourselves to the way God has set things up and God's rules. So the primary way that we do this, I believe, is through the sacramental life if you're a Catholic Christian and through prayer. So the sacraments are incredibly important. They're vehicles for grace to come into our lives. They're also vehicles for us to become catechized or educated or formed. For instance, during the Mass, we hear readings with commentary on those readings during the homily. There's various ways that God teaches us and forms us in the journey of our lives. We can't minimize the value of seeking God and accepting God's help as God reaches out for us in our lives. Sometimes when people have demonic problems in their lives, they say, oh, I've got this acute suffering, I'm in pain, this is awful, I just want somebody to come in and wave a magic wand and make it go away so I can go back to my life the way it was. And they say, you know, I never believed in this stuff, but suddenly it's happening to me, and I just want it to stop. I want you strange people to come in here and make it stop. And it's not that simple. Because when we've opened the door to the demonic through our free will, in whatever way we've done it, or through our passively not doing the things we need to do in the face of the pressure from the demonic, maybe that's in our family or in our culture or in the experiences, the traumas of our lives, which can affect us also, we need to seek God, seek formation from God, and then comply with that to whatever extent that we can and ask God to help us grow in that. If we reject the work of changing ourselves and conforming to God and say, I just want that person to come in and wave that magic wand and make it go away, 
it's probably not going to go away. Because God is allowing these demonic problems. The devil's on a leash. He's not free. Yes, he roams about like a lion seeking who he can devour, but he's on a leash. So it's when we, through our free will, give him some level of permission or rights to us that we start seeing the extraordinary activity beyond the normal activity of temptation. So we need to understand that, learn what the rules are, learn about what we did that maybe opened the door a little bit, because God's allowing that negative experience as a corrective emotional experience. This is just my perspective on it. So that we learn that doing this thing over here that we did led to bad consequences, it opened doors, it isn't a good thing, and that creature at the end of that hallway is not our friend. And so we have a usually a limited amount of time of suffering and reaction so that we learn that lesson. Just like a parent might allow a child that insists on being bad in a particular way to go ahead and burn their hand on the stove the 50th time they reach and they're not seriously hurt or anything, but they just feel the heat and they say, oh, oh, okay, I get it now, that's bad for me. So I always try to help people bring out the good from these experiences in the sense that we don't ask for them, we don't wish them, we don't want them to be there, but if God's allowing it, how do we take this as a corrective experience and learn from it in life? Just like in other areas of life, we have a bad experience and we say, okay, I'm making bad choices here. It led to these bad experiences. How do I then learn from that and then go on in a better way? So we can't just ask for somebody to come and take the problem away. And that touches on the next part of a formation that helps us get out of these situations. And that is the difference between magical thinking and religious or spiritual thinking in terms of the approach to things. In our, in our culture here in the United States, we often gravitate towards more of a magical thinking view. And that is, if I do a particular thing, a particular response will happen. And we see this, you know, played out in our movies and our media to an extent. And sometimes we think about this in our spirituality, but we don't realize we're doing it. It's kind of a tacit assumption that if I go, if I go do this thing like that, God responds and does something, as if I can grab God and make God do something by doing a particular action. Now, the exception to this, of course, we understand as Catholic Christians that the sacraments have a grace that if the sacrament is performed properly, that the grace from God comes. So it's guaranteed in a sense. But it's still not magical thinking because we're doing that sacrament at the prompting of God. God instituted those sacraments, gave us those promises, and then asks us to willingly participate in them. So in a sense, we're following God in that. If you pick up a book on the occult and it says, draw this circle on the ground in these squiggly lines and wiggle your fingers and say the, mumble these nonsense syllables, and the person believes that that causes some spirit to appear in the room and serve them, that's magical thinking. It says, if I do this weird ritual, suddenly I'm in control of that spirit. What's religious thinking? Religious or spiritual thinking is to say, God's in charge. God's providing the grace. God's providing the protection. God's intervening. God's doing all of this for me, and I'm trying to follow the will of God in my life. So, how do I do that in whatever way God is working with me at that point in my life? 
Of course, the sacraments are central for a Catholic Christian. The prayer life is central. Uh, seeking out the positive experiences in our life and the guidance and the inspiration that God brings into our lives, all of that is central to following God. The people that are embroiled in the demonic, sometimes it's not so much that they're seeking to follow God and live the Christian life, the Catholic life, uh, and obey God and seek God's will versus their own. Uh, that can be a problem if the person says, my will says I want this to stop and, and that's all I care about, versus, okay, Lord, I, I see that you're allowing this for some reason. Help me to understand why this is going on. Help me to grow closer to you and conform to you more. And that process is more work than a magical thinking approach, but it's what's actually going to be effective in the long run versus this other approach that really isn't going to do any good. Now, so foundation would be the sacramental life, the sacraments, the sacramentals. What are those? Sacraments, actions that the church takes. They have a guaranteed reaction of grace from God because they're instituted through Jesus Christ in the church, instituted by God, and we obey them. A sacramental, which, by the way, the exorcism rite is a sacramental. It's not a sacrament. The exorcism rite does not have a guaranteed effect. A sacramental is something that reminds us and prepares us for a sacrament. So it gets a little complicated for this discussion, but basically it's things like holy water, blessed salt, um, holy objects like a crucifix that we would wear, things like this. These are reminders and symbols that prepare us for sacraments and for receiving the grace of the sacraments. So bringing sacramentals in our life is helpful to us. It's a bolster to things. Having a blessed crucifix or holy symbols in your home, when you look at them, they remind you of things. They put your mind in a particular place. But they also carry a supernatural power and grace with them from their blessing. So we bring those into our lives as an assistance to us. So obeying God, avoiding sin, engaging in the sacraments, prayer life, trying to follow God as opposed to thinking in magical ways, trying to follow God's will, even in these negative situations. What can I learn from this, Lord? Like we had talked about in a previous segment, the woman with the divining rods. She got into very serious trouble, had great suffering, but when it was over, she turned to God and said, how do I bring good out of this? What good do you want me to bring out of this? And so she's reached out and taught other people about what happened to try to assist them and bring some good out of that situation. Now, Let's say you're in a situation and a lot of this is in place for you and you're having some of these difficulties. Well, if you're a Catholic Christian, the first place to start is your pastor. Everything within the Catholic Church, really, it starts for the faithful with your pastor. That's the way things are designed. So you want to go to your pastor in a sober, uh, calm, uh, methodical way to discuss this. Uh, make an appointment. Make an appointment so that you can go in and sit down spend an hour and talk about it in, in a private setting. Write things down before you go. There's a tendency when we first uh, meet somebody to talk about these distressing situations to just kind of ramble for 45 minutes and get it all off, off our chest and, and there's a lot of pressure to uh, talk quickly. Try to be calm and methodical and, and bring the facts in to the pastor and then ask them if there's what they would suggest and, and try to follow their lead. Now, often it will start with the house blessing or prayers for you, okay? 
Uh, it may, if it's something more serious, be something the pastor passes on to the bishop's office at the diocese, and they may, they'll respond in the way that they respond. And you want to be obedient to that. So in terms of the self-help, it's good to at least write everything down and be methodical. What you don't want to do is bring in a paranormal investigating group to try to quote-unquote document the situation to have proof to give to somebody. We've talked about this before, but basically with the paranormal investigating groups, they open the door to more manifestation because they invite it. This isn't helpful. All this does is give additional rights to any deceptive spirits to do more in your life and in your home. So, prayer, sacraments, conforming to God, working with your pastor, blessings, like the house blessing, having sacramentals in the house, like the holy water, the holy salt, symbols. Now, what if somebody is possessed, though? Which can be a very serious situation. It can be very distressing. And a lot of these things might be overwhelming to the family, to yourself. Uh, if you're the person that's possessed, this could be a very overwhelming time for you. And it can be overwhelming to the pastor. Not all priests are, are trained as exorcists. It's a special ministry within the church with specialized training. And it can be scary for some people that haven't encountered much of this before. So in situations like that, if the pastor isn't sure what to do, or if they're not formed in this area, you may want to write a letter to the diocese explaining it calmly, respectfully what's going on. And again, present the information. Always go to the pastor first, but if they're not sure what to do, if it's a full-blown possession, they're probably going to run it up to the diocese uh, through the system and take care of that. If you're somebody, and I'm speaking here really more of people that maybe aren't Catholic, they're not sure who to approach or how to approach them. If a person is possessed, you write a letter directly to the diocese. They'll get it to the right person, and they'll address it the way that they address it. Now, the self-help for a person that's possessed is a little more difficult because a possessed person does have difficulty praying. Internally, they may be able to pray and get the words out, but maybe not. Externally, they probably won't. They'll try to speak, but they'll be choked or their voice will be stopped. The important thing to understand, if you're possessed or if another person is possessed, don't think that the inability to vocalize prayer diminishes in any way that prayer that's in your heart that you're trying to make to God. God understands that limitation. It's the intent of the heart to pray that's important. So don't give up on prayer in those situations. A possessed person often can't be around sacramentals. So if they're around touching holy water, to them it burns. To them it hurts. The demons become enraged and torture them to try to punish them to control their behavior to not be around that sacramental. Wearing a blessed crucifix probably won't happen. Uh, they will probably tear it off because, again, it will burn them. It will hurt. The demons experience holy things as burning or fire usually, but sometimes in other ways. So the possessed person is a little more limited. They're probably not going to engage in the sacraments either. They're not going to be able to go to Mass most likely. They might, but they'll probably leave before the consecration, which is usually the crescendo of, of the pressure and difficulty for them. They're probably not going to engage in confession, though they might, through the grace of God, get through it. Uh, but usually the demons will take over and interrupt that process. So we see an attenuation of what you can do self-help-wise in the possession cases. 
The most important thing, I think, is for the family to try to be supportive, to pray for them. And usually it's the family that contacts uh, the diocese that they're living in as opposed to the person, because the person usually is unable to. A truly possessed person generally cannot be on the phone or sitting in the room with the priest talking about their possession. The demon will simply take over or stop the conversation. So it's usually the family member that's doing that for them. Now, one thing that the bishops have made clear in the Q&A that they've published online about exorcism in the church is that not only can Catholics approach the church for help with possession cases, or in fact, all the demonic cases, but non-Catholic Christians can also, and people of other faiths that have a genuine desire to be freed of these things. Now, one thing that's worth mentioning at this point is the methods that are often used in the non-Catholic Christian denominations are more what we call deliverance prayer, which we've discussed in a little more detail in a different segment. Essentially, that is using scripture readings and requesting that Jesus Christ heal the situation. This often works up to a point, but what we've seen over and over, and this is not casting any judgment or, or making negative statements about, about other faith systems at all, um, is that the more serious, more full-blown possession cases generally don't respond to those methods. It generally just inflames the case and makes it uh, worse in a sense. And those cases are often brought to the Catholic Church eventually, uh, where the full rite of exorcism is used by priests that are, that are formed and trained in this area that have full access to the full sacramental life that God gave us through the Church. So. If you're, if you're struggling with these uh, situations, particularly a full possession, and maybe it's dragging on or, or it's getting difficult, it's, uh, it's worth considering approaching the church and, and asking for her assistance. Now, before we close this segment, it's very important to remember that all of the cases that we're talking about, we're talking about genuine demonic cases. The vast majority of complaints and suffering that are going on in the world are not genuine spiritual problems. There are a tremendous number of things that the average person doesn't fully understand about the way the brain works, about the way the mind works, about psychological problems, hormone changes, and sleep. I'm going to give you a couple quick uh, examples of this that will hopefully be very helpful to people because they represent the most common misunderstood, uh, basically, complaints or experiences. The number one thing to understand is what's called a hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucination. And those are just fancy Greek words for as we're going to sleep, there's that twilight where you're half asleep and you're not, you're kind of starting to dream, but your thoughts are drifting and you're in between. And the other one is as you're coming out and you're waking up where you're not fully awake yet. Usually at least once in somebody's life, they will have the experience of having kind of a waking dream while they're half awake. These can sometimes be negative. They can sometimes be visual. The person may see something. They will often hear something. Uh, they'll have some feeling associated with that. Some people, this happens frequently. The critical thing I'm bringing up here is uh, that sleep disturbances are complicated and they seem very real. So if the situation that you're involved in only happens as the person's waking up. If, if all they're reporting or you're experiencing is, I woke up and I saw da-da-da, and then it was gone. There's a good chance that that's a sleep disorder. You want to look at 
are the phenomenon happening outside of the sleep situation? In addition to possibly having waking dreams as we're going into sleep and coming out of sleep, we sometimes see people that have what's called sleep paralysis. When we're sleeping, our body basically shuts down our motor system because the brain, the mind, can't tell the difference between a dream and being awake. If you were running in the dream, if your motor system wasn't shut down, your legs would be thrashing in the bed as if you were running. Okay, the brain doesn't know the difference. And so at the base of the brain, in the, around the cranial nerves in the neck, anesthesia is secreted by the body naturally every time you go to sleep that shuts off the motor system. From here up, the motor system is still active. Now what can happen for some people, and usually at least once in a lifetime this will happen to everybody, but some people have this frequently. They'll be waking up and the anesthesia system doesn't work perfectly and you stay anesthetized for longer than you normally would. And what the person experiences is from here down in their body they cannot move at all. They're paralyzed, and, but they can move their eyes and look around. They can't move their mouth to speak or scream. They often feel great terror, and they're hallucinating and seeing things because they're having a hypnagogic or hypnopompic experience. So from their perspective, I'm paralyzed. There's creatures in the room. I can't move. I want to scream, but I can't, which is even scarier. And this is basically a night terror combined with sleep paralysis. Unfortunately, though very scary, these things do happen. These are part of our biology. If you want to explore this a little bit more, there's a very good website called nightterrors.org that's been up for many years. It's kind of a self-help website, a forum, where people share their experiences about these paralysis and waking dreams, the fear that it causes, the medical approaches they've taken to try to address it with, under their doctors, uh, self-help things they've done that maybe have helped or haven't helped. You're only experiencing things as you're going to sleep or waking up, there's a good chance it's just a sleep disorder and it's often treatable medically. The other big area that I see over and over is towards the end of our lives, as our hormones are changing, particularly for women that have gone through menopause and in the years shortly thereafter, there's often hormonal changes in the body that are new to the person in their life and sometimes as senility is starting to creep into their life as their mind is, is, is aging. And some people have difficulties uh, with memory, with seeing and hearing things. Uh, basically, their mind has difficulties. And as the hormones in their body are changing, sometimes people feel what feels like an electrical surge running through them as their nerves might be responding to the hormonal changes. Their, their consciousness is being impaired by the senility coming in. And these people often, they're often females that have these unfortunate problems. They'll develop what's called delusions, which are fixed ideas about it. They'll, they'll assume that it's a particular thing, and they'll be stuck on that idea, and it's very scary for them uh, and the way they're interpreting it. That's another one of the big ones that I see over and over. So in addition to that, it's very important with all of these problems that you talk with your medical doctor about what you're experiencing, whether it's your home, whether it's yourself, whether you think you're possessed, the church will require, absolutely require, that you be properly medically and psychiatrically evaluated before any exorcism is approved. Okay? You can't just find an exorcist and, and tell them to, to bring their kit and do an exorcism on you. It doesn't work that way because the church in her wisdom knows that we need to rule out medical and psychiatric illnesses first 
Because if we move forward with an exorcism and leave something untreated, great harm can be done to the person through not treating that. And if they have a psychological problem and some delusional strange ideas, doing the exorcism ritual can reinforce those ideas or introduce new ones. So we don't want to do harm. We want to help people, but we have to be prudent and reasonable. And so with all of these, we want to make sure that we rule out medical and psychiatric psychological problems first. And also just basic things. So it, it might be animals on the walls. It might be something else. Okay. And one final tip, if you're having these difficulties, don't saturate your mind with scary stories. Don't saturate yourself by going online and obsessively researching about exorcism or possession and watching horror movies and constantly talking about this stuff. Some people that have a little bit of mental illness get kind of fixated on these ideas. They get themselves very worked up. They get their minds stuck in that rut and they kind of are their own worst enemy when it comes to this. Try to be joyful. Try to approach spirituality in a joyful way reaching out for God and all the good things in life as opposed to staring at the devil all the time. Because even if it's just in your mind that you're staring at the devil all the time, you're, you're kind of gravitating towards evil. So be joyful, be happy, participate with the church, partake of all the riches that the church has in terms of the grace in various ways and all the ways that God is reaching out to you. And be reasonable. Make sure that this isn't something you're just misunderstanding.